Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this plan of salvation that you designed. Thank you that you would send Jesus to be our great high priest, our mediator, as we talked about in Sunday school this morning. The one who would offer a perfect sacrifice that would atone for our sin, that would take away your wrath, that would leave us clean in your sight, and that Jesus is now an intercessor for us before the throne. We thank you that you've thought of everything, you've planned everything to begin the good work in us and bring it to completion when Jesus comes back. And so we're so thankful that you would love us uh, even when we're still sinners and ungodly and enemies and rescue us from what we were and what we deserved. I pray for anyone who's here today who hasn't experienced that rescue, who is still in their sins, still under judgment and condemnation, still headed for a very awful eternity unless you intervene. And so we pray that your spirit would work among us this morning, that you would actually rescue someone even today. Lord, as we open your word, for those who do know you, I just pray there would be a deeper understanding of what you have done for us, a deeper thankfulness that you have accomplished it all through Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Our text for today continues the discussion of why the gospel is the best news anyone could ever hear. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter. So far we've seen in the first paragraph that the gospel is ultimately from God and about God. It was promised beforehand in the Word of God, and its central focus is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. This good news is intended to bring about the obedience of faith, ongoing obedience that is the fruit of ongoing faith. It is intended for all the ethnic groups of the world, and it is intended to result in Jesus being given the honor that is due him as the great Savior that he is. So let's go ahead and then read verses 8 through 17 this morning. Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So let's start with the statement about the gospel we see in verse 16. It, the gospel, is the power of God for or unto salvation to everyone who believes. So first we should probably define the word salvation. The word save means to deliver from danger or rescue from harm and bring to a place of safety. And so in any given week, we might come across a story that uses the word save in that way. Firefighters saved children from burning apartment. The children were in great danger. They could be burned or even die. They couldn't rescue themselves from harm. They needed someone to bring them out of their dangerous situation and bring them to safety. And because the firefighters were able to save them, they are now okay. So what is it that we need to be saved from? As we continue in this letter, we'll see that we need to be rescued from the guilt and penalty of sin. We need to be delivered from the wrath of God. Very next week, right after the righteous man shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So there's this problem called the wrath of God. We need to talk about... We need to be restored to a good relationship with God that starts now and lasts forever. All of those are included in the term salvation. So as we said before, salvation is God's complete remedy in Christ for our complete ruin in sin. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. God's power is revealed in how he rescues sinners like us. We don't have any power to bring about our own salvation. We don't have the ability to make things right with God. We can't even contribute anything to it. It has nothing to do with what we can do. It has everything to do with what God has done by his power. The gospel displays God's power to save those who could not rescue our, themselves, namely us. And so I was just thinking of the uh, story of the rich young ruler and... Um, Remember, he turns away, and Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom, and the disciples were astonished. They couldn't believe Jesus said that, and they said, well, then who can be saved? Because they assumed if you were rich, that meant you, God's favor was on your life. So if someone who had God's favor on their life can't be saved, who can? And you remember his answer? With people... This is what? Impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So it is impossible for us to save ourselves. But what is impossible for us is possible through the power of God. This salvation is for everyone who believes. 
And again, it's just worth stressing, not for everyone who can be good enough or can do enough or who can try hard enough. It is only by faith. Why did God design it this way? For or because in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So God's power is revealed in the gospel and his righteousness is also revealed. And as we keep going through Romans, we'll see his love and his grace and his mercy are all revealed through the gospel. So a big question is, what is the righteousness of God? Three main pieces. First, it refers to his absolutely righteous character. God is perfectly righteous. He always does what is absolutely Right, so here's just some verses, Genesis 18, 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is, of course he will. Or Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 and 4. I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. And one more is Psalm 92, verse 15. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So God is perfectly righteous. And this perfectly righteous God requires perfect righteousness from us. So remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that Brett is preaching through 520. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees had a kind of righteousness. It's mostly about outward conformity to the rules. And Jesus intensifies that and says it's not just about Outward behavior, it's about heart, it's about desires, it's about what you want and love. It's not just what you do on the outside. And if you aren't past what the Pharisees have, you won't go to heaven. And then he makes it even worse, 548. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So that's the standard, perfect righteousness, 100% conformity to 100% of God's requirements 100% of the time. And none of us meet that standard. And so Paul will say the obvious when we get to Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. None of us are perfectly acceptable before God because we fall short of that standard of perfection. So we've got a big problem here. We all fall short of God's righteous requirements. And he can't just let that go. He can't just say, well, boys will be boys or girls will be girls. and No big deal. Because as a perfectly righteous God, that would compromise his righteousness to do that. And Paul will spend a big chunk of Romans 3 explaining how a righteous God can righteously Pardon unrighteous people. Because forgiving us calls into question his righteousness. So we'll get to that in chapter 3. And 3 through 5 will explain 
this all more fully. But here's Martin Luther's story about that phrase, the righteousness of God. So you might know Martin Luther started out as a Catholic monk. He, and this is what James Boyce writes about him. Luther was a pious, earnest monk, but he had no peace of soul. He wanted to please God, to be accepted by him, but the harder he worked, the more elusive the salvation of his soul seemed to be. Instead of growing closer to God, he found himself moving away from him. Instead of coming to love God, which Luther knew he should do, he found himself hating God for requiring an apparently impossible standard of righteousness of human beings. So it's like, okay, God, you set the bar this high. I can't make it. And so your righteousness is what's sending me to hell. And I hate you for that. Because you've stacked the deck against me. So this is Luther's own words. Quote, I had no love for that holy and just God who punishes sinners. I was filled with secret anger against him and hated him. But then... By the Spirit of God, I understood the words. Verse 16 and 17 of Romans 1. That's the words he's talking about. When I learned how the justification of the sinner, sinner being declared right in God's sight, proceeds from the free mercy of our Lord through faith, then I felt born again like a new man. In very truth, this language of St. Paul was to me the true gate of paradise. So I see God's righteousness, the righteousness of God. It's like, that's bad news because I'm not righteous. And then Romans 1, 16, 17 is like, no, it's actually good news because God provides what he requires in Christ. The righteous God who requires perfect righteousness, which we do not have, gives us perfect righteousness through faith in Christ. So here's John Stott. The righteousness of God is God's righteous initiative in putting sinners right with himself by bestowing on them a righteousness which is not their own, but his. The righteousness of God is, a, is God's just Justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous. In which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. He has done it through Christ, the righteous one, who died for the unrighteous. And he does it by faith when we put our trust in him and cry to him for mercy. So that's what justification is. That's what righteousness is. It's this I don't have what it takes to be accepted by God. I'm guilty. I deserve his just condemnation. Jesus does have that righteousness. He paid for my unrighteousness. He credits his righteousness to me. And so now I am righteous before a holy and righteous God because of Christ. So back to Romans. And so... That's why we just sang, Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. That's my righteousness. Jesus, not me. Not my attempts at being good enough. 
Jesus is my perfect righteousness. At the end of the service, or in just a minute, we're going to sing, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It's about being identified with Jesus by faith. And this gift of God's righteousness is received by faith alone. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, it is by faith from first to last, from beginning to end. It is and must be by faith. It always has been by faith. It always will be by faith, which is why Paul reminds us of this quote from the book of Habakkuk, that last phrase in verse 17, he's quoting, but the righteous shall live by faith, or when he gets to chapter 4, he'll say, verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Faith was credited as righteousness. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So this has been the case all along. Remember, this gospel was announced and promised beforehand in the prophets, in the scriptures. And these texts are saying God always designed a relationship with him to be through faith. Well, before we look at who this good news is for, just want to touch briefly on why Paul and why we would be motivated to share with others. We already mentioned obedience to the Great Commission, and that's a good enough reason. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all the nations. We've mentioned compassion for lost people, that we, we have a, a, a heart of mercy that recognizes the, the dangerous state people are in and we want them to know what we have come to know. We've mentioned the sheer fact it's hard to keep good news to ourselves when there's a new baby or a new job or good biopsy. Ultimately, we saw last week, it's because we want Jesus to be given the honor that's due him. And Paul adds to those, in case those other ones aren't kicking in, I am under obligation. Literally, I am a debtor. So think of a doctor who discovers a cure for cancer. It wouldn't be right to keep the cure to himself. In one sense, we would say he owes it to the human race to share the answer to this awful disease. It would be a debt to pay. Well, sin is infinitely worse than cancer. And believers know that the only remedy for sin and its eternal consequences is the gospel. And so another motivation in addition to obedience and compassion and can't keep it to ourselves and the glory of Christ is we know everyone desperately needs what we have. And so there's a sense of, it's only right to tell others. But this is not to be seen as a heavy burden. So the very next verse, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. So eager means marked by enthusiastic desire or interest, moved by a strong, urgent desire. So this is not a reluctant, I have to do this. That's what Christians do. I'm obligated but an attitude that is ready and willing and happy to tell other people 
the best news in the world. So don't hear debtor and think, ugh. Hear eager debtor, like, I want to tell people this news. And right after telling us he's an eager debtor, Paul wants us to know he's not ashamed of the gospel. Shame is the idea of feeling embarrassed because we have a sense of being in the wrong or because we did something that made us look foolish. And Paul knows this message isn't popular. You probably are aware this message is not popular in our culture. In first century culture, he knows Jews are going to see it as a stumbling block and Greeks are going to see it as foolishness. In our culture, people are going to see us as narrow-minded and exclusive and judgmental. And who do you think you are to say you have the only corner on truth or your way is the only way or the best way? And so there's just a lot of pushback on this message. And there always has been. But it doesn't matter. Paul says, I'm going to keep sharing the good news because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So yeah, I know people aren't going to just love it. That's okay. It's God's power to save people. And so I'll keep sharing it. So that brings us to the third observation from these verses. I want to close by asking and answering the question, who is this good news for? In verse 14, Paul says he is a debtor, an eager debtor to both Greeks and barbarians. In other words, people who were part of Greek culture and people who were not exposed to Greek culture. Barbarian adds the flavor of uncultured, if not, not very civilized. So you have this spectrum. Sophisticated, refined Greeks think, you know, philosophers and very snooty. And you say all the other end of the spectrum, kind of primitive, uncouth barbarians. And everybody in between. Doesn't matter what's your cultural background. And then he says, the good news is also for the wise and the foolish. It doesn't matter how educated or uneducated you are. Doesn't matter how wise you are in the world's eyes or how foolish you are to the world. Everybody needs to know and embrace this gospel. So everyone in the world needs the gospel, including everyone in this room and everyone listening online. And if God is convicting you, acknowledge, I am not righteous. I am not right in God's sight. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Remember we saw in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not even one. So none of us are good enough. None of us can make the cut. None of us make that standard of perfection. We're all fall short. And the second thing is then, I can't make myself righteous. I can't be right in God's sight by anything I could do, no matter how hard I try. And so later when we get to Romans 10, Paul's going to make this contrast of the two kinds of righteousness. 
Romans 10, 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So you can either be righteous God's way or you can try to establish your own kind of righteousness. Look, God, look what I did. I went to church. I, I put money. We're going to have bell ringers pretty soon. I put money in the bucket for Salvation Army. Or I gave to the United Way. Or I, look, God, look at all these righteous things I've done. You remember what God says in Isaiah 64, 6? All our righteousness is as filthy rags. So it's not going to cut it. So we renounce our own righteousness. We turn from sin. We reverse course. And we trust Christ alone for the forgiveness of our unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, he made him who knew no sin. So God the Father made Jesus to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so turn over to Philippians 3. Philippians 3, Paul's talking about his credentials, his background, that he could put confidence in, in the flesh if anybody else could. And there's this phrase in verse 6, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So in terms of outward conformity to God's law, got it. Just quite a claim. But then read the very next verse. But whatever things were gained to me, like my claim to be righteous before the law, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. Now listen. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. I say forget that. That doesn't make it. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There's Romans. Your righteousness isn't good enough. God supplies a righteousness that is sufficient and perfect in Christ. By faith, we embrace Christ and his forgiveness and his righteousness, and then we are right with God now and forever. So trust in Christ alone for righteousness. But the gospel is not just for unbelievers before coming to Christ. It is for every believer after coming to Christ. So look again at how Paul describes the people he's eager to preach to in Rome. Go back to Romans 1. Starting at 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, or called to belong to Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith 
is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. He talks about verse 12, that we could encourage each other's faith. These people in Rome are believers. Paul's not writing an evangelistic tract for the Roman Forum. He's writing to a church of gathered believers and saying, I can't wait to get there and preach the gospel to you. Why? And the simple answer is because they still need to hear it and we still need to hear it again and again. So I appreciated the song selection and the prayer this morning about come thou found of every blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We, we're still sinners after we come to Christ. That should not be a newsflash if you are in touch with the reality. So we still need the gospel. Or look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 15 touched on this a couple weeks ago, but let's do it again. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So they, these professing believers in Corinth have already heard Paul preach the gospel. They've already received the gospel. They are currently standing in the gospel. So you might say, oh, they don't need the gospel. And he says, no, I'm telling you again. I'm making it known to you again. You need to hear it again and keep standing in it because if you don't keep standing in it, it shows that you have believed in vain. So going over the gospel again is a means of strengthening believers so that we persevere in faith. Say that again. That is so important. Believing, hearing the gospel over and over is a means of strengthening us so that we persevere in faith. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about persevering in faith. And one of the means God has ordained for us to persevere is hearing the gospel over and over and keeping believing over and over the good news of Christ. And as we've shared before, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So in our small group last Sunday, I heard for the first time a version of Christianity that says, if you didn't perform well enough, you would lose your salvation. Now I've heard a lot of versions of you don't perform well enough might what might happen. I'd never heard that one, that you could lose your salvation. Now, even if you already know that's impossible, which I hope you do from Scripture, many, many Christians still feel as though my acceptance with God 
or how happy God is with me on a given day is based entirely on how well I'm doing spiritually. Having a good day spiritually? God's, God's good. Not having a good day spiritually? God's not happy. Not, so, not a good place. So let me read you something from Jerry Bridges, um, who's kind of the one that popularized that phrase about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. So Bridges says, Unfortunately, many believers do not live as if justification, being declared right in God's sight because of Christ's righteousness being credited to you, Many believers don't live as if justification is a permanent abiding state. They have divorced their hope of eternal life in heaven from their relationship with God today. They think as though putting on Christ's robe of righteousness is something that happens at death, but meanwhile in this life, they draw their sense of God's acceptance from their most recent performance of Christian duties or their avoidance of certain sins. And then he quotes B.B. Warfield. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly life because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we will never be accepted at all. This is not just true of us before we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need for Christ does not cease with our believing nor does the nature of our relationship to him ever change. No matter what our attainments in Christian graces or achievements in behavior may be, it is always based on his blood and righteousness. There is nothing you can ever do that makes you acceptable to God. And then back to Bridges. For Paul, justification was not only a point in time event that occurred in the past, but it was a present reality in which he rejoiced every day. Paul did what we should do. He renounced any confidence in his own performance or, for that matter, any dismay over his lack of performance. Instead, by faith, he looked to Jesus Christ and his righteousness for his sense of being right with God today and tomorrow and throughout eternity. So let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you that that's true, not just for Paul, but for every believer this morning. Our acceptance is only because of Jesus. That's why you accepted us in the first place. That's why you accept us today or tomorrow. That's why you'll accept us and welcome us into your heaven later. And so we thank you for Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to us. We thank you that his death took away our unrighteousness. And I pray for anyone here who's still trusting in their own attempts at righteousness and being good enough. Lord, I pray that they would turn away from that and put their hope in Christ alone. For anyone who still thinks your favor and your acceptance goes up and down because of our performance, Lord, that they be set free from that kind of performance mentality, trying to be good enough, to keep you happy and just rest in this beautiful truth that our acceptance now and forever is because of Christ. And so, Lord, we, we need your grace, and we pray that you would continue to pour out on us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Oh, we're going to 